What are the five apologetic methodologies and what does this mean? Find out on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Beltor Christie podcast, and this is your host for the time that we have together, yours truly, Brian Chilton. We thank you for joining us today on our podcast as we are uh, coming from uh, the office here, or actually my home office here now at Westfield Baptist Church, or uh, here at the in my house at our home here in Westfield, North Carolina, as we've made the transition. So uh, we hope you're doing well today, wherever you may be. And so uh, we have some uh, uh, a lot of stuff to talk about on today's podcast. I want to uh, uh, briefly give my two cents in to the um, apparent uh, Nike in ad that's been going on and and so uh, later in the podcast, I'll I'll give my two cents for what it's worth uh, concerning that, and and um, go from there. And then I also have a question from a good friend of mine uh, who asked a very good question pertaining to uh, the um, pre-existence of Jesus and how people were saved before the time of. Uh, Jesus, uh, his existence here on earth, and before his crucifixion and resurrection. So we'll talk about, we'll tackle those questions a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, but first and foremost, our main topic today, we're going to jump right into this, is a, is a topic that I have been fully engaged uh, in the past uh, few weeks, probably, and will be engaged in the, in the uh, following weeks to come. I'm getting ready for an intensive with uh, Dr. Gary Habermas up at Liberty University, and the class is on apologetic methodologies. And so I briefly want to take some time to discuss the five primary apologetic methodologies uh, before we uh, talk, talk about uh, some of the other issues that I mentioned already. Uh, there are basically five apologetic methodologies and these methodologies have different starting points and and what I mean to say by that is that these different apologetic uh, methods they have a different view of reason they have a different view of what can be known but most importantly the difference uh, between these methodologies these five are what is the starting point when you're talking with an unbeliever where do you start? Where do you begin the conversation? And that's really one of the biggest differences. Um, uh, one of the biggest differences between these five apologetic methodologies. So I want to take a look now. I want to just say that I think we have to be cautious in uh, becoming too stringent on any one particular methodology. 
uh, or one, any particular method. I think that we need to be open to the possibility that there may be individuals who need to have uh, uh, different starting points than, than other people we than, with which we, with whom we engage. But one of the biggest problems I think that as you're going to see, I think one of the biggest problems is certain theological convictions. Not necessarily primary convictions of, of, of what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity, but our um, theological uh, endorsements of Calvinism and so on and so forth, I, and Arminianism and so on and so forth, I think this weighs into the issue. And, and again, I think we have to be cautious um, with with this and understanding that different people come from different areas, different people are going to need different things to clear the way so that they give Christianity a fair hearing. And of course we understand, and I'm understanding, as does all, as do all the apologists who, who uh, endorse these various views, uh, that the Holy Spirit is involved in this process, that it's by the Holy Spirit that we come to faith. Okay, but apologetics is necessary just as evangelism is necessary. And I believe apologetics and evangelism really coincide and go hand in hand. So with each of these methodologies, uh, with each method, I'll, I'll give the approach. And I want to give you a brief description of the approach. I want to give you some proponents of these individual approaches and uh, these methods. And I want to give you a few strengths and weaknesses, especially as uh, Kenneth Boa and Robert Bowman list in their book, Faith Has Its Reasons, uh, integ- uh, int- integra- <laughs> Integrative Approaches to Defending the Christian Faith, which is a very good book. Very thick book, but very good book. So let's start. The first uh, method is the one that has the richest history in apologetics, and it's called the classical approach. And the reason it's called the classical approach is because this approach has been used, employed by individuals such as Tertullian and even Justin Martyr as early as the second century. Um, the classical approach begins with a deductive argument for the existence of God. They're going to start with natural revelation, and that's the information we have in the world, the information that is available to everyone. And they're going to make a case for the existence of God and then move into the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection and for the authenticity of the Bible. Now, there are many proponents. Again, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, uh, in, um, I believe it's Tertullian if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I may be telling you wrong, but I believe, uh, believe, believe it's Tertullian. Anyhow, Justin Martyr is certainly, um, is certainly an advocate of the classical approach, and many others have used this tactic as well in the early church. William Lane Craig is a good example of one who uses the classical approach. He uses the Kalam cosmological argument to defend the existence of God and by saying that uh, everything that begins to exist has a, a reason for its existence. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a reason for its existence or it has a cause. Uh, there, there's a cause behind the, the beginning of anything that begins to exist. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. And that points to uh, the ultimate causer, uh, the uncaused cause, which is God. Norman Geisler, uh, he is another classical uh, apologist. He is going to take more of a Thomistic uh, view of this. Thomas Aquinas, uh, Aristotle would be uh, considered to be in the classical uh, approach. 
C.S. Lewis, I'll go back to Norman Geisler. Norman Geisler is going to use the five ways that Thomas Aquinas uses. And interestingly, I've, I've discovered that uh, Geisler and Craig, Craig is a little more skeptical of, of uh, Thomas Aquinas's five ways. Geisler is a little more skeptical of Craig's Kalam cosmological argument. I think both of them have merit. I think both arguments are good and valid. And so... Um, I accept both of them, really. C.S. Lewis, at least initially, was a classical apologist. Some people believe that he may have gravitated more towards evidentialism later in life. B.B. Warfield, uh, he is a um, moderate Calvinist. Uh, he is uh, he was uh, in Westminster Theological Seminary, if I'm not mistaken. Or he may, actually, I think he may have been one of the last Princeton uh, theologians before. Princeton became a little more liberal, um, or the old Princeton view, and so he holds to the classical approach, and Peter Kreeft is one who also holds to the classical approach. Now, the strengths of the classical approach are, are threefold. We're going to give you three strengths and three weaknesses. Some of this information comes from the book Faith Has Its Reasons, again, by Kenneth Boa and Robert Bowman. The first strength of the classical approach is that it affirms human reason. It understands that we have reasoning capacity to, to see facts and figures and to be able to come to a logical conclusion. It also raises awareness of one's worldview. It, 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 this view helps us understand that all of us have a, a Weltanschauung, a, a worldview that, uh, that, is greatly, uh, that greatly influences the way we view the world and uh, the way we see things in life, quite honestly. And so this combats that, this confronts that. Uh, we, it also recognizes the common ground we have with unbelievers. And classical approach, I think, does a great job here in seeing what is it that unbelievers will accept and start from there. Again, it places a high view, the classical approach does, places a high view on natural revelation, those things that God has revealed to all of us uh, that is readily available to everyone. And so uh, there are a few weaknesses. There are a few weaknesses to all these approaches. First, uh, Boa and Bowman say that uh, it possibly overestimates reason's ability to know the truth. And, and to a degree, I would agree, but I don't know that I necessarily accept that completely. Um, I think that any rational person who is open to the truth can see, I believe, quite honestly, will see that that is it is at least more you can at least say it is far more probable that God exists than he than that he doesn't uh, it, so I I, I, I kind of disagree a little bit with that but I understand what they're saying secondly many the, theistic arguments are not universally accepted and here is here's a, a classic uh, criticism of the classical approach many people think that for an argument to be valid that everyone must accept it. Well, let's be honest. If you have two people in a room, those two people are not going to agree with everything. In fact, to give you an example, um, my wife and I went to the store and we were looking at different paints. And uh, she said, do you like this color white or do you like off-white better or do you like bone? And I couldn't tell a difference. Now, she could tell a difference between the three, but I couldn't tell a difference hardly. Maybe just a slight difference, but not enough to make a difference. And it really... <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't anything big enough for me to care either way, you know, quite honestly. Uh, but uh, we were both seeing the same thing, 
And so she was seeing something that that I wasn't seeing, uh, but it was but the evidence was there available to both of us. Okay, so. Um, and, and she liked one shade better than, than I did. We go to an ice cream store, and I like chocolate, and she likes straw, uh, v- uh, vanilla. Um, th- does that change the fact that there is a chocolate ice cream and a vanilla ice cream just because one doesn't prefer that flavor of ice cream? Well, I don't think it changes the truth. So I think the truth is the truth no matter uh, who accepts it. And, and so I don't think that's necessarily a valid criticism of the classical approach. And thirdly, it does not accept and necessarily address personal dimensions of knowledge and belief. Now, I will grant this uh, criticism to, to the classical approach. I do think that perhaps the classical apologist would do better to address uh, epistemological issues of how we know truth, how do we know what we know, and deal with issues of knowledge and belief. And then I would say, too, that, that we may uh, those who are classical apologists may need to emphasize more uh, the Holy Spirit's work in this as well. So there, that's the first. That's the classical approach. The second approach is called evidential, uh, evidentialism. And this is similar. The classical approach is going to, to begin with presenting the argument for God, They're going to, or maybe even dealing with truth, moving to God's existence, then to the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, classical apologetics is called the two-step approach. Uh, evidentialism is called the one-step approach because it begins with the historical evidence, often inductively, of Jesus' resurrection and the Bible, and then argues from that for the existence of God. So in other words, they're going to show that Jesus literally rose from the dead, that the evidence best attests to his physical bodily resurrection, and say from there, we have evidence that miracles do exist. Because of that, we can say God has actively moved in creation, and he, he exists and is active, actively involved in creation. Now, the proponents of this view are Gary Habermas, the, the teacher I have for this course, Joseph Butler, James Orr, Clark Pinnock, John Warwick Montgomery, and Rich, Richard Swinburne. Um, and so here again, they're going to start with the historical evidence for the faith and then move from there. I think you can also add Josh and probably Sean McDowell to this list because this is the approach that they, they tend to use in their book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and quite frankly, the majority of their books. I think you could probably make a good case that the, the McDowells are um, evidentialists. So what are the strengths? The strengths is that probability is unavoidable. Now, they're not going to say that you can know something historically with 100% certainty. They're going to say that we have probabilities. But they're going to say the certainty comes by faith. That if something is, say something is, uh, well, let me just give you, give you for instance, uh, the, the historians say that we can know what was in the New Testament to a degree of certainty, what were in the originals to a degree of certainty of 99.7%. So if something is 99.7% likely, it only takes, what, uh, eight tenths of faith to, to fill in the gap? Uh, you know, so... So the faith that we have fills in the gap of that. Even if you can say Jesus' resurrection happened with a 95% certitude, you only have to require 5% faith. The odds are more likely that it happened than it didn't. And, and quite honestly, I think that uh, we, most of the things we deal with in life are that way. 
So it does not avoid the probabilities of life. Okay, and secondly, um, it appeals to a method of inquiry. Okay, it looks for evidence. And then thirdly, uh, it emphasizes factual evidence. In, in the, it engages people to look at the facts to make to make the um, uh, to, to to make a case for or against, and to and to settle for the facts, accept the facts that are before them. And by doing so, a good strong case can be made for Jesus's resurrection and the authenticity of Scripture. Now there are some weaknesses mentioned by Boa and Bowman. Uh, one is that this approach assumes a theistic worldview. But here again, I think that if you look at the evidence, and um, that that's that's the point of evidentialism, that you see this evidence that God has done something, and then you, you're working from there. You've accepted that, and then you're working from uh, the evidence to show the same things that, you, that that have convicted you. So I don't know that it's necessarily a weakness, but it is something to mention. It uses some presupposition. Some will say. Um, just by the method, everybody's going to have a bias, no matter who who the person is. Uh, so that's just part of it. And then it underestimates the human factor. Uh, that is that some people do not uh, some do not emphasize the impact of sin or one's bias against the evidence. Again, I don't know that that's necessarily a strong weakness, uh, but that is something that you know needs to be mentioned. There's thirdly the cumulative case approach. And this approach is is one that is not going to emphasize too much the theistic uh, or the cosmological arguments and, and, and teleological arguments of classicalism. They may not overly emphasize the historical uh, evidences for the um, resurrection of Jesus uh, as in evidentialism. But what they're going to do is they're going to take all kinds of arguments and they're going to, they may not emphasize, overly emphasize one or the other. They're going to say, well, this one may not convince you, but let's look at this other argument. And just like a, a prosecutor, uh, they're going to build a case defending the historicity, defending the factuality of Christianity, building a case with all of the evidence, both from the classical approach and evidentialism and, from, and, and otherwise. Uh, the proponents of this are uh, of this approach could be said to be Gr- Douglas uh, Grut- Grutheis, I think is how you say that his name. Uh, Grutis, Grutheis, Grutheis, I think it's how you say. Anyhow, anyhow, Douglas. <laughs> we'll say him. Uh, he is a cumulative case apologist. Paul Feinberg is another one. C. Stephen Evans and John uh, Edward John Carnell is uh, mentioned to be a cumulative case apologist. Now, here are the strengths. They use numerous arguments that may not otherwise be considered by the classical approach and by the other approaches that that are mentioned. Uh, Secondly, they show the overall strength of Christianity. And thirdly, they don't don't get bogged down in one particular area. They're they're going to make a broad, sweeping assessment of the claims for Christianity and show that by the end that uh, there is a strong case to be made for the Christian faith. Now, there are a few weaknesses. One, they diminish the value of arguments, uh, some argumentation. I have seen, not all, but some cumulative case apologists will, will say, uh, will, I think, give too much weight to uh, critics' of, uh, problems with the teleological and, well, with Aquinas' viewpoints. Uh, quite honestly, I, I don't buy into 
many of the um, cr- uh, critiques of Thomas Aquinas's Five Ways, uh, I think I think many of them are are quite sound. I think they're really commonsensical, to be honest. But uh, so I think they're overly critical of of uh, of uh, of the of some of those arguments. And, and that leads us to this skeptical about how much one can know. Cumulative case apologists are sometimes skeptical in this. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, can engage in too many areas. I think sometimes with cumulative case apologists, one problem that can happen is that they can be looking at so many different areas that it's like a person with a hyperactivity disorder where they never stay on point on one particular area. They're jumping from one to the next, and they never really finish the process. I think if a person's not careful, that can happen, and that's that's one particular weakness, I think, that can be added to the cumulative case factor. Number four, presuppositional apologetics. This has been the one that I think has been, for for me, the most controversial uh, there are some who are strong presuppositional apologists, and so um, the problem. Well, I'll get into that in a minute. But uh, the presuppositional apologetics begins with the assumption that God exists, and and already begins with the assumption that the Bible is true. And what the, what the presuppositionalists will do is they will combat the presuppositions that a person holds, showing that that uh, logic value. Ascetics and many things in life only make sense if they're if 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 they're in a world where God exists. Uh, some of the proponents of uh, this approach are Cornelius Van Til, who is one of the uh, big fathers of of the modern presuppositional apologetic mo- movement. Gregory Bonson is another one. Uh, Martin Luther. Uh, Blaise Pascal, Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard is a uh, is a uh, the famed existentialist. Uh, so he can be called a presuppositional apologist. Karl Barth and David Blesch, uh, Donald Blesch is a. Uh, uh, are all considered to be presuppositional apologists. The strengths are that they do place... Now, here's the thing about presuppositional apologetics. They do place a strong emphasis on Scripture, and that is a wonderful thing. They, they place a strong emphasis on Scripture. They have a humble view of human reason. They do question how much people can know. And thirdly, they are centered completely on Christ and on Scripture, which is a good thing. Now, the weaknesses are that uh, they dismiss propositional knowledge. They dismiss, I think, to too great of a degree how much people can know by their reason. They're overly critical of natural revelation and reason, and many times overly critical of evidence itself. Uh, they under It often undermines the historical confidence in the Bible's authenticity because many times they're guilty of circular reasoning basically it's coming to say, well, the Bible is God's revelation, and how do I know this? Because the Bible says it's God's revelation. And they'll argue that uh, everyone has some type of circular reasoning based upon presuppositions. I don't, that's one of the biggest critiques I have of this approach is the circular reasoning, and that's why this is not my preferred uh, method, but I do think that it does have some value because I do think we do need to engage uh, the presuppositions that people hold, but I, but if we have evidence for the faith, why not use it? That that's the that's the biggest problem I have with this approach is that uh, it almost seems seems that some presuppositional apologists 
not all, and I'm not even so sure that, uh, that Van Til was against evidence after reading some more information about him, but some presuppositional apologists will say, well, it, we don't even need to use evidence. Well, but if we have evidence and it makes a strong case for Christ, if it makes a strong case for the historicity of Scripture, why not use that? That's like what William Lane Craig says. If we have it at our disposal and it's going to help someone come to faith, why withhold it? Let's use it. So, anyhow, that's my two cents. And then finally, we see the Reformed epistemological approach. This is a unique approach that I think is very interesting. Uh, it argues from the belief that belief in God is warranted, a warranted belief, is something that can be assumed and doesn't even necessarily need to be defended because it's so commonsensical that everyone should accept it. For instance, it's commonsensical that gravity exists because we're not floating off into space. So it makes sense that there is gravity, and there's, you don't have to go out and necessarily test it because we see evidence of it all around us. And so Alvin Plantinga and other guys like this will say, well, belief in God is such a warranted belief that it only makes sense to say that God exists, that you that they would say that you, it's not necessarily something that you even have to defend. It's so commonsensical that God exists that it should be a warranted belief. And from that point, the apologists will argue for God's revelation to humanity, uh, providing some, some will provide evidence to show that uh, the Bible is God's inspired word given to humanity. The proponents of this view are John Calvin, uh, wow, okay, we had a truck going down the road and let us know it was there. <laughs> John Calvin, uh, Alvin Plantinga, Thomas Reed, uh, Charles Hodge, uh, Abraham Cupier, uh, Cupier, however you say his name, and then Gordon Clark are some of the proponents of this view. Now, the strengths is that they link apologetics to theology in a way that that many of these systems don't. And so I think that's a very good thing. They strongly engage in epistemology. That is, how do we know what we know? And they offer a strong challenge to unbelief that I think is, is really strong. Now, the weakness is that uh, they accept too strong of a view of Calvinism. Now, I am not a strong Calvinist, uh, but I, I do see merit in this approach. So I think that if they were to... Uh, let down the guard a little bit on Calvinism and and open it up so that others uh, who may be Molinists like myself or individuals who may be Wesleyans and whatnot uh, that would I think greater help the uh, th this this movement. They secondly underestimate the power that facts hold, and I think they place too many restrictions on apologetics in general. And so those are some of the uh, the critiques that one could have against reform the reformed epistemological approach. Now, which view do I hold? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I am somewhere between a classical apologist, which is the view is is the method that I have often employed, somewhere between there and, and evidentialism, because sometimes I do use the evidential approach. Uh, but that's not to say that these other viewpoints, these other approaches, these other methodologies don't have uh, an important place. I think that, quite honestly, as I've been studying through these methodologies, I'm, I'm coming to the point to realize that I think that there is a place for all of these approaches at the apologetic table. And so uh, whichever methodology we use, 
we need to realize we're on the same team. Let's not go at one another. If someone needs to use evidentialism, let that person use evidentialism. If a person needs to engage in presuppositional apologetics, use that method. Use what method God gives you and leads you to use to make the greatest impact for Christ. With that being said, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back here in just a few moments as we're going to talk about uh, uh, Kaepernick and Nike, and we're also going to answer the question about uh, how how were people saved before the New Covenant? That and a lot more coming up on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're going to change this world for Christ. Don't look around and wonder who it is. Say, God, make it me. Make it me. Because we're training champions. That's a part of the vision. Write the vision, make it plain. We're training champions to change the world. That vision of training champions for Christ to change the world is the foundation of Liberty University. It always has been, and it always will be. Everything we are today is built upon it. But while our vision hasn't changed since 1971, the world around us has. Fewer and fewer people understand what we mean when we say train champions for Christ. So we show them. We show them what authentic faith in Christ looks like through the lens of academics, athletics, through the way we have fun and the way we serve one another and the world. We show them that we the faithful, the bold, the united, and the brave are also we the creators, the innovators, the entrepreneurs, and the leaders. We the champions are committed to tackling the issues of our time with integrity and prayer. Our vision hasn't changed. It is strengthened, broadened, expanded. It has grown into over 550 programs of study reaching into over 80 countries, uniting over 100,000 students into a beautifully diverse family with a singular vision. We the champions, in order to affirm our tradition of unwavering faith, ignite a passion for wisdom, challenge perspectives, inspire creativity, and pursue knowledge. Do resolve to Be the voice for the voiceless. Bring healing to the hurting. Fight for the oppressed. Defend freedom. Defy stereotypes. And follow God's call wherever it may be. All right, we're back here on uh, the Bellator Christie podcast uh, with some uh, Johnny Cash there, Folsom Prison Blues there. All right, we're going to uh, jump into uh, just a couple of issues here before we close the podcast out. Um, first of all, Paul, uh, this is uh, an issue that uh, has been lighting up the social media world and this this issue about uh, Colin Kaepernick and more particularly uh, Nike. Uh, making uh, Colin Kaepernick the face of their um, 
brand, if you want to call it that, or say it that way. Um, so anyhow, I want to go to uh, uh, to Fox News. I, I think that uh, Sean Hannity has some wonderful words on this, and uh, and so I want to let him uh, say give. I'm going to play this clip first, and I'm going to give my two cents on this, um, and then we'll go from there. All right, let's listen to the words of Sean Hannity. NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick is not new to controversy. As a player, he frequently used the NFL as a public platform to protest what he called police brutality and what he perceived as America's ongoing oppression against minorities in the country. He famously refused to stand for the national anthem during games, leading others in the, on the field to do the same. Look at the Soxie War. With police officers depicted as pigs, he wore it in practice. He even donned a T-shirt featuring Cuban dictator Fidel Castro during a press conference ahead of a game against the Miami Dolphins. Nike is now using Kaepernick to headline their new ad campaign. And the words you see on your screen read, quote, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. I'd like to take a moment to remind Nike executives, sacrificing everything looks like it's not a multi-millionaire social justice warrior whose greatest feat of bravery kneeling on a football field and wearing those socks against our police officers. Instead, those who sacrifice everything can be found on the ground in Afghanistan as we speak. U.S. soldiers fighting and dying to keep this country safe, fighting for a cause bigger than themselves. They can be found in the bravery and the courage of men and women that protect and serve police, firemen, first responders that run towards danger when we all run away. And they can also be found in graveyards all around the world, from Normandy to the Pacific, from Vietnam to Korea, all across the United States. There are millions of men and women who have really sacrificed everything for strangers they didn't even know. So the world, this country, could be a better, safer, freer place. There are plenty of heroes in this country that Nike could feature. But Castro, loving America, let's see, cop-hating, ex-three-year backup quarterback is not one of them. And let me just say here, I uh, would fully uh, uh, concur with uh, the words of Sean Hannity there without getting into the, uh, not trying to get in too much into the controversial aspects, but anymore if you say anything, it's going to be controversial, so you may as well just go ahead and dive into it. Um, I, I understand, I understand the purpose and and. I understand that racism is alive and well today, and I understand that in certain circumstances, uh, things have happened um, to to uh, individuals that 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 have should not have happened. And I know sometimes police officers make mistakes. I know sometimes, and and I understand this. But at the same time, I think it's a logical fallacy to lump all police officers together due to a few issues that have happened. And I think that uh, the problem I have with Colin Kaepernick is the way he has gone about uh, doing what he's done. I understand he has the freedom to do as he pleases. Nike has the freedom to um, to have anyone they want as their spokesperson. But I also have the freedom not to agree with their methodology, and I also have the right to not purchase their products. The problem is, is with Kaepernick and, and, and what he's doing, uh, or what he has done, is, uh, is it's self-defeating. He is appealing to his freedom by offending those who provide him that very freedom that he enjoys. 
Uh, his portrayal of officers as pigs is reprehensible. And let's not even just go into the issue of kneeling uh, at the national anthem, which I think, quite honestly, is disrespectful. Now, do, do people have the freedom to do that? Of course they do. But whenever you're on public television and you're representing the nation and you'll stand for the uh, the anthem for other nations, but you won't stand for your own, I, I question how that is. I understand what he's trying to do, but I question the means by which he's doing that, to bringing offense to the nation that has given him the freedom to play football, uh, a sport, which is, let me just say, entertainment. Football, baseball, all the sports their entertainment, okay? I'm not saying sports don't have value. They do. Of course they do. But they're entertainment, okay? Um, so the the thing is is, is, is it's very self-defeating. He is offending. He is, he is combating those who provide him the very means of freedom. And if it were not for our police officers, let me just tell you, you don't want anarchy, you do not want a society of anarchists uh, where everybody does as they please. You'd have no uh, authority whatsoever. And and uh, if someone robs you, steals from you, or mistreats you, then you have no means to to hold that person accountable. So, you know, the, the, the means by which he's done this, uh, you know, offending, and actually I think in some ways uh, the portrayals of uh, police officers, there goes another truck, okay, police officers as pigs, I think actually stirs up some of the, the, the problems where we have had officers who have been shot, innocent officers who've been shot just by simply wearing the uniform, and that's reprehensible. His endorsement of Castro, uh, a, a fascist, is is quite suspect. So, my opinion is, for what it's worth, my two cents is that I think companies would do well to get out of politics and focus on their customers instead. And as Christians, I think that we need to seek to build unity and avoid the disunity that such such tactics bring. Um, so quite honestly, I, I think we as a society, uh, we need to try to find the things that, that we have in common, uh, or, or otherwise our whole society as it is is going to just uh, completely melt down. Some people say that this was a, uh, a tactic by Nike to bring attention. Perhaps that's what it is. Perhaps that's all that it is, uh, because they have certainly uh, brought attention to themselves. If that was their intention, then they succeeded in, at that at least. But uh, anyhow, that's... You know, I, I just I'm very uncomfortable with with the way uh, this has uh, been portrayed and the way this has been done. I think there uh, there are much better ways to try to bring your case to society rather than being offensive to people. Uh, but it seems like in our society we just it seems like people just try to offend any, any other people anymore. Um, it, it, the days of good dialogue and uh, conversation. It's becoming a, a lost art, unfortunately, and that's to our own detriment. I'm going to close the podcast out with a question I just received, actually, before going on the air. A good friend of mine uh, down in Yakin County posted this question asking, um, let me go back to it and um, yeah, let me bring it up here. Um, the question was asked, um, how was salvation achieved before 
uh, Christ came to earth. Okay, um, before Jesus died, how was salvation achieved? And I pointed out uh, to my friend that first and foremost, we need to understand that Jesus has always existed according to the scriptures. Uh, John one one says, "In the beginning was the Word. The Word, it, meaning Jesus, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, the same was in the beginning with God. So, so from the very beginning, Jesus, the Word, has always existed." That there was never a time when Jesus was not, because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. The same thing applies to the Holy Spirit. The same thing applies to the Father. That's the great mystery of the Trinity of God. That there is one God, yet three essences, or three personas, if you want to call it that, but one God. That they're all is part of the, it's, it's the same God. And so, without getting too deep in that, let me go back to the question. So, the, the primary question was, how was salvation achieved for individuals before the days of the New Covenant? And from what we can find in Scripture, both New Testament and Old alike, is that salvation was, in many ways, very comparable to the way it is in the New Covenant. Uh, they accepted the grace of God. Uh, people accepted the grace of God. God's grace was bestowed upon them, and they entered into a covenant relationship with God. Now, in the old covenant, the uh, the covenant was different. Uh, so, because the covenant was different, there were different uh, uh, things that applied to them than necessarily that, that they do in today's covenant, the new covenant found in Christ. Uh, for instance, in the old covenant, a person came to faith by the grace of God that was bestowed upon them, but then they were expected to keep the law. And by keeping the law, by being circumcised, by keeping the dietary regulations, by offering sacrifices and whatnot, they were showing the world, they were a representation to the world that they had entered into this covenant relationship with God. But one of the one of the things that uh, have really has really come out to me especially in my class with Dr. Leo Purser at Liberty this past summer is that uh, that Jews essential Judaism has always expressed the need for having God's grace now the problem is later on people started uh, placing more emphasis upon the law and these regulations than they did upon God's grace. And that's one thing that the New Testament writers, uh, Jesus, starting with Jesus and then uh, developing, you know, uh, going forward through Paul and many others, which they basically, they preached the same gospel, let me say. But they basically said that, that uh, God's grace is sufficient to save a person. And then through Christ, uh, we have this once-for-all sacrifice that has taken place so that people... No matter where they may be, by, by by claiming the sacrifice made for them on Mount Calvary, that they could be saved and saved for all eternity. So, in many ways, there are many similarities to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, people were saved by the grace of God in both covenants. But uh, in the Old Covenant, there were a lot more rules and regulations about keeping the law as a public identifier to the world that they were that they belonged to Yahweh. Uh, and Yahweh is a personal name of God. It just means I am that I am. He's a self-existent one, and there's a lot of rich theology that can be mentioned uh, by that. So I hope I've answered the question for, for my friend uh, who asked to remain anonymous. And so I hope that answers the question. If you have any more questions pertaining to this, uh, you can. Uh, my friend can contact me, or you can contact me if you have any questions that you would like addressed here on the Bellator Christie Podcast by going to bellatorchristie.com. 
and look for the link it should be at the top right hand side of the screen where it says submit a question to Bellator Christie and by doing so your question may be featured on a future article or on a future podcast uh, depending on the time and availability that I have to to respond to that. Uh, So, with that being said, we hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And as always, remember that the truth shall set you free. God bless. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of BellatorChristi.com or its affiliates. The Bellator Christi Podcast is a production of BellatorChristi.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Kayla Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas. Let's start with the theory of relativity. You know Einstein, right? Yes, I've, I haven't met him, but I know of him, yes. <laughs> well... In his theory, he said that the displacement of space-time is the cause of gravity. If this is the case, then the absence of gravity, or the absence of space-time must be pure gravity. Because of the law of flow, things will go to the point of least resistance. And if there's nothing there to resist, that's the point of least resistance. Okay. So, an absence of space-time would be pure gravity. Black holes are an absence of space-time. Nothing, not even light, escape their pull. Also, if the universe is all of space-time and the entire Higgs field and all of space-time and matter everything, then whatever's outside of the universe must be an absence of space-time. If that is the case, then the universe is not expanding into the absolute void around it. It's falling. Now, let's think back to the beginning of time. We know the universe has an age, right? 13.8 billion years. So, 13.8 billion years ago, the entire universe was reduced to a singularity, something, a particle smaller than a quark. However, if gravity is always working, i.e. if you jumped off this building, you're not gonna fall 15 seconds later, you're gonna fall immediately. So if gravity is always working, then the universe, and if the singularity was always there, like some atheists try to say, then the universe should have no age, it should be infinitely old. But it's not. It has an age. It's 13.8 billion years old. And something can't come from nothing because it would have to exist in order to cause itself to exist, which is illogical. So therefore, something other must have created the singularity. That something other we observe as God. Well, Hawking's theory that there should be no cause because of gravity, well, Gravity can't create something. Gravity can't do anything if it's not acting against something. Gravity is literally nothing, as we stated before. And nothing applied on nothing is just nothing. Nothing. Even I can follow that. Okay. Atheists that try to say that there is no God, but in reality it takes more faith to believe that there's no God than it does to believe that there is a God.